everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University. And with me, visitor Jerome Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy at Genesee Community College. If you ask someone what the meaning of life was and they responded to make as many people as happy as possible, well, that sounds pretty good, right? This, in a nutshell, is utilitarianism. A closer look at the concept brings to light a number of issues that must be addressed by deeper thinking. It's not all sunshine and rainbows in utilitarianism, and in some thought experiments, it may even get innocent people killed. All right, so um, utilitarianism is what we're going to talk about this week. Uh, we might have a little bit of a different format than uh, what we do normally, which isn't really saying much because lots of times we don't stick to the format anyway. So <laughs> it won't be that big of a uh, won't be that big of a stretch. But um, yeah, essentially, you know, we're going to cover uh, some basic basic tenets of the philosophy, but really want to get into how it's going to uh, you know how it's affecting things in the world today, and uh, you know what the um, pros and cons of that are. So um, we're uh, we're still um, recording via distance. Uh, I think that we got a lot of our sound issues ironed out. Um, last week, I know last week's podcast was a little bit rough. We had to make some audio compromises in order to uh, make up for some quality issues, but I think we're on track now. So we should have a- <laughs> the quality issue was my old computer that sounds rather like a World War Two one World War One biplane when it's uh, or or perhaps a jet that never leaves the tarmac. So uh, <laughs> being on a laptop now helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, much better. Um, so all right, let's just jump right into it. So what what is utilitarianism? I give you kind of the nutshell little uh, explanation. Right. And I feel like in, if you give a, a short explanation of it, it's really hard to um, disagree with it. It sounds very, well, okay, well, yeah, yeah. Because it's a, uh, it's a hedonistic philosophy, but it's other-centered. So it, it has something for uh, the, the approach of their perspective seems right from a, a sort of macro level until you start developing examples that's that's precisely it. it's one of the reasons that I, that I like it because on the surface of it it sounds uh totally logical uh you know when john stuart mill wrote the the essential document utilitarianism he was as you say uh taking a somewhat hedonistic view that the, the greatest uh pleasure uh is happiness and the and the and and the more there is of of pain then there's there's less happiness and so it's trying it's sort of a mathematical attempt <laughs> to to work out uh, a balance of actions and that sounds just fine if you live in a monochromatic uh, uh viewpoint such that well you're only going to encounter one problem at one uh, one problem at a time and you're going to be able to choose what's the best way to approach that problem and that's what i mean by monochromatic because of course uh we live in a very three-dimensional uh and uh spectrum world where and we're going to have lots of issues coming in on us colliding with each other and if i take an action such and such a way fine but that then there are going to be repercussions secondarily and how do i address those and that's where it gets really complicated it's not it's not simple math anymore yeah, yeah, I think that that's um, that's a big problem with any kind of theoretical 
concept. A real good kind of example is anybody who's done any sort of home improvement work. Um, if you have a house, it doesn't really matter. I mean, unless you just bought like a, you know, some sort of modern prefabricated place. Um, you look at it and there's always, there's been building codes for quite a while. Um, but you might tear, you know, you might go to one wall of your house and okay, I've got studs 18 inches apart here. There's going to be another wall with studs 36 inches apart. And then you'll have, oh, maybe you have copper piping in one place and then PVC piping in another place. And then you have, oh, well, why did they run the wiring through here? Oh, well, they ran it through there because for some reason there's a block, you know, cement block here. And like, so even though theoretically you have this blueprint for a house and how it should work, um, you know, once you start building something and you run into issues, you make compromises and then those compromises are built upon by later decisions until um, the whole thing becomes a lot more messy in practice than it was <laughs> yes, uh, it when, it, when you theoretically set out. And that, that applies not just for physical structures, but also for political structures or um, interpersonal um, sort of sort of things. So that's where the, yeah, that mathematically trying to weigh um, human uh, interactions and relationships gets really, really tricky. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And I love, I love your example because never do you have, I had this happen yesterday, I, it, never do you have one job in a house that just, oh, well, I do that and it gets done. Even changing a light bulb often leads to other uh, checking, cross-checking, and finding out that you don't have enough bulbs in a supply, which means you have to go get one, which gets very difficult in a time as, as we're living in now. And so it's really on the ground. I mean, I love the on-the-groundness of it. Even, I mean, Jeremy Bentham was the, the person who, beat, who who really laid out the idea of utilitarianism, but but John Stuart Mill was uh, was a great proponent of, of of it and Mill's father knew Bentham, and so it was it was really an in-house kind of thing. But but it's but it's the idea of the thing that that compels me most about it. Still, there are a lot of people who say utilitarianism is old hat. It's it's it, it has no bearing in the twenty-three, and, and there are arguments that I can see that 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 may be the case. But I'm old-fashioned enough to to enjoy this one part of it. Yeah. Uh, Bentham, but particularly Mill, said that the one, one thing about utilitarianism, and Kant picked up on this later, is, is you you cannot arbitrarily choose who is of more value and then weigh your decision against, well, the greatest good for that particular number, but but the others don't count. So it, it's 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 uh, very sensible and uh, 21st century in the sense that you can't measure the value of one class of people or one group of people and say, well, because it benefits them and they're so much more important to a society, then uh, it doesn't so much matter what happens to the others. Uh, utilitarianism will not allow for that. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of anti <laughs> An anti-oligarchic or nepotistic kind of system. You know, everybody yeah. is of equal value. Um, and so, I, yeah, when I'm reading about some, you hear some of the quotes that these guys give about, you know, you need to act as a disinterested spectator or these sorts of things. And I'm always thinking of like an ant colony or like a bee colony or something where you see yeah. they'll, they'll do crazy things like build a bridge and then, you know, have other ants walk across it or sacrifice themselves for certain things or whatever. And you think, Man, 
you know, all right, you, you look at it from the hive level or the, the colony level, and you think, all right, well, that makes a lot of sense that the, uh, the hive or the colony would want to accomplish that goal. You look at the individual motivations of the ant or the bee, which may not, they don't exist. Um, and you wonder, well, what would, what would motivate you to, to do that, you know? Well, you just hit on something really, really. Uh, I, I think your your wide reading is is showing here. There's. Uh, are you familiar with E. O. Wilson? Yeah. Yeah. Wilson? yeah. Okay. So Wilson has. He's still with us. He's been writing for decades. Uh, uh, sociologist, philosopher, a Southern gentleman, but he. Uh, but he said he said in one of his more recent books. I'm paraphrasing terribly, but he he said, uh, yeah. Ant colonies, because he studied ants, he said utilitarianism is, is great, except the humans aren't ants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't. It 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 it's seeming one has to try to to not uh, get overly involved in the measuring and comparing uh, happiness uh, among different people. Uh, because it, I, I, so it could be very much argued that you can't absolutely measure the happiness of anyone, um, and and if and if happiness is the particular principle, then how we have to define happiness, and is it a higher level happiness as Mill was proposing, or is it is it is it a, a, a you know physical or or endorphin based happiness? All of those things have to come into the conversation somehow. But if you yeah. That's where it gets really murky, um, yeah. because utilitarianism has this sort of base. It's, it's sort of establishing itself as uh, something that can be empirically measured, but the, the very thing that it's founded on is um, an abstract concept, happiness, you know, or pleasure, right. or the avoidance of pain. Like, how do you... And, and you know, in real life, um, some things that end up, not, maybe not happiness, but some things that end up giving people... Um, pleasure in the long run might cause you pain in the short run. And that's where you kind of get into the two different aspects of utilitarianism between act and rule, uh, maybe. But I think a lot of people realize some of the most satisfying things you do in life are things that require a lot of sacrifice or, or pain in the, in the short term. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, this brings... One of the things that, that Bentham said that I that I think is more... He was a wacky kind of fellow in some ways, but I think it's uh, very useful. He wanted consistency. He said he, he, he's, he's valuing uh, consistency as one of the best measures. Uh, so do you consistently do X, Y, or Z for fairly consistent reasons? Um, he would. He That's where he would then launch, well, you're probably being utilitarianism, utilitarian in... In your intent, because you continue to seek the well-being. See, I, I like the definition of of happiness as well-being. Not that that's any less abstract, but <laughs> but right, in our time, right now in this pandemic time, I think so. Yeah, and it changes the uh, you know you think about how that extrapolates to human behavior or what sort of things people are willing to um, integrate. Because, like like we we're just talking about. Um, very rarely is a human experiencing one emotion or one situation or one problem at a time. No, um, you know, you have an entire lifetime of prior learning, prior experiences. You have a, a whole host, an ecosystem 
of pressures and responsibilities and desires in the present moment, and you have a limitless number of futures stretched out before you, and your every decision you make is incorporating all aspects of that, um, you know, I, ecosystem is probably the best word that you're living in. So happiness really is a too narrow of a term, whereas well-being, I think, is much more appropriate for how people make decisions, you know? Yeah. And we're, yeah, we're, and you know, I, I, I leave it to you to, to take us to whatever ground level we want on this. But I, but I do think that that's establishing these kind of things about it. So if you say that the greatest happiness for the greatest number it means the be- the most well being for the most, and if we accept that uh, the well being of some is. Uh, Often, uh, Kant would go to, okay, so if those with the least benefit most and those with the most benefit some, then that's a really fine utilitarian uh, decision, whatever it would be. Um, And and so I'm, I'm not trying to take us too far politically, but um, but in the let's use the French word in the milieu in which we are living with this uh, we're all being asked to sacrifice uh, I want to say a lot although the sacrifices themselves can't be measured on one particular scale either uh, in in this COVID-19 pandemic we are changing our behaviors, or we're asking, we're being asked to change our behaviors by uh, people with scientific and, and medical authority um, for the well-being of the greatest number of people in on the planet. It's a planetary thing. This is this is. I think this is for me one of the maybe the most uh, powerful uh, Kantian moments of uh, the categorical imperative, uh, a rule that can be agreed to applied universally that everybody needs to do X for the well-being. Uh, I haven't seen it to this level ever before in my memory. Yeah, so we're definitely going to dig into this a little bit deeper in a bit, but let's give people a little bit more background. Sure. So you mentioned Kantian, yeah. and we're talking about utilitarianism. And so really the, the two major differences between these kind of schools of philosophy is one is based on motivations and one is based on end results, right? That's right. That's right. So the consequentialist idea is an act is an act was a good act. <clears throat> Something that one does is good if it turns out well. <laughs> and it wasn't such a good act if it doesn't turn out well. The consequences of the act uh, determine whether or not it was uh, well-formed. Right. So um, a, a good example I just heard in doing research for the show was uh, Batman and the Joker, right? So you, got, <laughs> yes, yeah, you got Batman and the Joker. And Batman has um, the moral fortitude to say, that he doesn't believe killing's right. So he, does, he never kills the Joker. He always locks the Joker up in Arkham Asylum. Right. But the Joker always escapes and continues killing more people. Yeah. So a, 
a Kantian philosopher would say Batman's doing the correct thing. Batman is sticking by his moral principles that killing is wrong. So he doesn't kill the Joker, he locks him up. A utilitarian would say that Batman is actually acting immorally because he knows that the Joker is killed. He knows that the Joker will escape and kill again. Yeah. So innocent people's blood is technically on Batman's hands for not killing the Joker and and as a result, having innocent people killed in the future. And that kind of highlights the differences between whether or not you consider somebody's motivations for action, the prime uh, aspect of morality, or whether you consider the consequences of the action, irregardless of the motivations, the prime aspect of morality. And It's so much fun to use pop culture for this. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it makes it it makes it um relatable because yeah. we all run into these situations in everyday life, and um, you know, one that's personal like that can be examined. We can also look at it, um, you know, on political or, or economic terms. Utilitarianism, you know, really is a um, it relates to capitalism in a, in a big way. If you look at uh, a trickle trickle down economics, for instance, right. So the idea behind it, right? You have, okay, well, what the greatest number of good for, if we give this money to these people, then it's going to create good for all of these other people under them. That's the theory, um, <laughs> right? And so maybe the data doesn't back that up. And what's right, the data? Exactly. You're morally responsible to make other decisions. But from the abstract point of view, that's kind of the thought behind it. Um, and like you said, you know, when it, we have to make these decisions for ourselves, whether the intent behind an action or the consequences of an action um, are what determine whether an action is moral. Because sometimes, I mean, in, in, a lot of times, the, the motivations and the end result uh, can be in, in conflict or, you know, not, not match up. So to use, to use the example, that you were talking about, the deontologist, which we've, we've talked about before, the, the duty-based philosophy, uh, an action uh, is, is right if it's undertaken with a sense of duty, no matter how it turns out. I would venture to say that that's probably quite strong in the military world. Right. Uh, yeah, and... And and perhaps in the political world too, the deontologists would say, "Well, I have a duty to to help people. I wrote this bill. Uh, I, I stood in the way of it for some reasons. I I, I said okay to it for other reasons, uh, but it was my duty to try to get something out there that people could uh, could benefit from." Uh, and so the deontologist might, might forgive that the consequentialist might say well yeah it's all well and good to say that you want to you want to give uh, $1200 to everybody in the country uh, but if you don't measure that in certain ways or or have checks and balances on it in certain ways then there's going to be a lot of missed targets uh, and so it might not consequentially work out as well as one had hoped um, the the other the thing about uh, utilitarianism that I think is important to bring up, uh, and this goes to a bit of pop culture. If you want to go to something like The Watchmen, not not the new TV show, which I do want to watch. I haven't watched The Watchmen yet, but but the graphic novel and the and the movie uh, that 
in, in when you have a person who consciously chooses to undertake a, a supremely destructive act in order to benefit a larger population of uh, the purest utilitarians, uh, uh, you know, Mill and Kant, uh, would, and, and Bentham originally would say, no, you, you, you can't call something utilitarian if, you, if you've done something evil or something uh, destructive, uh, uh, morally destructive, um, and intentionally. It's all about the intention, mm. which is kind of messy, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that really makes things um, even more even more complicated. But I think it's really important. I, you know, the class that I'm taking now is about educational policy. And, um, you know, we were talking, the, the topic this week was um, school vouchers. Uh, you know, the current, current administration is very keen on... Um, vouchers for private or non-traditional educational opportunities um, as opposed to properly funding public schools. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they gave us, you know, a, a form to sort of debate that. And really, in the f- looking through the research and then kind of, you know, undertaking some rational thought, really what I, I sort of, the conclusion I came to was that the biggest I think the biggest barrier or the biggest disagreement with people who, you know, drawn very much along party lines, people who would like private education and people who would prefer to see public education. Yeah. I think the biggest thing there is confidence in the government to redistribute tax money properly. I don't think as many people are against taxes as, as we think. I think the primary issue is that some people see their money being taken and they don't think that it's being redistributed efficiently. And so as a result, they feel as if they're being robbed. Um, But if you look at it and you were to say, okay, well, we're going to take this percentage of your money to ensure that all children in the country receive an education, that in theory sounds just fine. I think everybody would agree with it. Okay, well, if you could take this percentage of my money and you could accomplish the goals that you're saying you're going to try to accomplish, then I think everybody would be in agreement. But because of how it's actually playing out, some people are looking at it and saying, okay, well, the, you know, whatever the motivations are, the consequences of this are not playing out. And so we're demanding a, an alternative and the other, the other portion of people are saying, well, no, we need to retool the current system that we have in order to make it work right. Yeah. And, yeah. The, the, well, the, you're, you're getting into something that uh, um, Carl uh, Popper, uh, I, this is a side note that is absolutely meaningless to almost anybody, but there was a, there was a children's book and it was made into a musical called Mr. Popper's Penguins because it was about behaviorism and everything. But, but Carl <laughs> Popper, uh, he suggested uh, in, in the 20th century, he's, he's saying uh, that the greatest, uh, the greatest happiness for the greatest number, um, instead one should demand uh, something a little more modest, uh, that, that the, the, the least amount of avoidable suffering for all should be the goal of utilitarianism. 
Uh, so he was, he's talking about uh, hunger, with the shortage, shortage of food, um, the equitable distribution, and so on. So it was much less um, um, high-minded and abstract. Uh, um, and and in the 20th century, you, you saw some of this. So so to go to, go back to what you're talking about with education, uh, what would what would might one say is the least amount of avoidable uh, suffering in education? Uh, one, it might be that you're still going to acknowledge that because of the current system, which has been around for a long time, which is the tax base, that there's no way that a school district uh, in Wyoming County is going to have the same uh, resources that a school district would have in a, uh, in a in certain parts of a wealthier county like Monroe County. Hmm. Uh, you're never going to have, uh, in other words, a uh, an equitable distribution in which what happens in Warsaw or Letchworth or Perry is going to be what happens in Pittsburgh or Penfield. And and so the the, the purest utilitarians might say educationally, well, then you have to change the system so that the same amount is distributed everywhere. The more I don't want to say realistic because I don't. There's no reason why we couldn't think about that. It's just we don't often. Uh, but the more practical, perhaps the John Dewey and kind of practical pragmatism uh, would would say, well, okay, but you can lessen the suffering by perhaps adjusting the tax rate a little bit more to give a little bit more to the school district to do whatever it can. Um, but we'll accept that we can't have the same things that other places have. I, the thing is, I don't think people are willing to accept that, even though they want to keep the same system in place. Yeah, yeah, because it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it. It sounds very socialist or very, uh, you know. Well, they can't take our money and give it to somebody that I don't know. Well, I mean. And yet we have Social Security, which is right. one of the yeah, biggest yeah. socialist systems there is. So, <laughs> it, it's all of what we think is is contributing to. Whenever it becomes what's contributing to my happiness, not the happiness of the larger number, then you're getting away from utilitarianism entirely. And that's why utilitarianism is is kind of messy, is because, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's it's centered around hedonism, so around happiness, but it's focused it's others focused and that's not the way people think people are motivated by their self-interest and uh oftentimes like like we were saying the self-interest uh the well-being versus the happiness might not always line up and uh yeah it creates a lot of um interesting situations and how you you apply it so how how can you apply can can Utilitarianism, is it meant to be applied to anything or, um, you know, is, is it? Well, that's an interesting question because I don't, uh, meant sounds awfully close to ought. And there are numbers of philosophers who say if you start saying ought, then you're getting into a kind of moralism where my system, uh, the principles of my uh, belief system, whatever they are, are clearly superior to yours because I say so. And therefore, I'm going to try to remove your rights and reshape them so that I can so that I can uh, I can show you that my principles were best. Um, so I think in, in it meant uh, meaning intention. Um, I think it can be applied 
to almost anything. But I, but again, the, the the issue is, and what else is being applied at the same time? What what cluster of situations are you dealing with? So it, I think it's not meant to be applied to one single kind of problem. But I think it often slips into the more classical form, uh, seems to be focused on one problem at a time. And that's pretty much now what happens to us most of the time. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we're talking about more abstract sort of things like a, an educational policy, it seems like utilitarianism is a fitting theory. But if you're talking about personal relationships, utilitarianism, like that last seems very shallow. You know, like what if I was... Well, should I continue my relationship with Norm? Well, let's see. What what does he add to my well-being? <laughs> are we contributing to the greatest yeah. number of good? Are we contributing to the greatest number of good, or are we really just wasting an hour of people's times on Saturday? Well, all right. <laughs> the, the hedonic calculus isn't in our favor, so I'm going to end my relationship with Norm. Yeah, right? yes, it exactly. It doesn't seem to apply very well. Uh, that's that you know, is an excellent example. And, and no, when you, when you get it down to the granular level, um, and you start you start talking about well, greatest good for how many how many people you know you've told me we have a kind of uh, a rough idea that we have uh, quite a few people listening to us on different continents. I everybody on different continents, by the way, is that. <laughs> It's it's a pleasure to talk to people from everywhere. Uh, it's int it's interesting to us that you're listening. But uh, if we start asking, but why are they listening? And we start moving away from what we decide to talk about uh, because we try to second guess who's listening. And gee, if we if we met it a little bit more, then maybe we could do uh, reach even more people, and perhaps that would be a good. The, the trouble with that is it might cause us to stray away from whatever it is that seems to be functioning for what we're doing in the first place. Right, right, and and so yeah, it's a pretty simple thought experiment, right? Maybe we consider all right. Well, our show is too long. People don't have this kind of chunk of time, so. Maybe if we cut our show down to 20 minutes, people would listen to it more on their ride to work. Yeah. Well, we, we'd only be able to talk about a third of the amount of stuff. Or, you know, well, maybe if we simpli sim uh, simplified our language, uh, you know, people who, are, who primarily don't speak English could understand us better, you know, or, yeah. or that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, then you run into issues with descriptions, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's always that, that kind of give and take. And that's, that's where utilitarianism gets kind of interesting is because well, what is the greatest good for the listeners? Is it is it getting more listeners and uh, swaying their opinion through a limited um, sort of scope, or is it sticking with um, you know a more comprehensive sort of show and not reaching as many people? You know, like where where's the uh, where does the math play out there? Well, if we were being strictly utilitarian, yes, it would be that mathematical kind of thing. And I, I have to say, I'm glad that we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I, I think we would we would not be, okay, so here's the happiness. The happiness, this is the microcosm. The happiness is having a discussion with you, my former student, over and over and over. Uh, we have such a variety of, of discussions we've we've built a friendship we have this um, this this artistic thing that we're doing uh however um, and 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 we and we push the envelope and we experiment a little bit and we laugh a lot 
uh, and we happen to have accrued listeners. And we hoped that somebody might listen, but we never set a target number of, well, if we don't reach that number, then then we're not going to do it anymore. I, I think that would have been terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not, we're not undertaking a utilitarian act in itself by, by doing this. Right. Uh, there wasn't that, that uh, political, social, philosophical motivation to somehow help people understand more. I don't think we ever really exactly had that as a, as a prime directive. Uh, maybe that, maybe I'm wrong, but I, but I, I think it was anybody who might listen, perhaps they'd be more interested in some ideas and perhaps it could clarify some ideas or take them to a place they hadn't thought about being before. And, and that uh, you as a, as, uh, as a student of education and as, self-taught and, and an educator and and i as an educator uh i think that's probably one of the better ways to do it is to cause people to think socrates said i can i can never teach anyone i can only uh give them reason to think i can only cause thought yeah yeah and then, so that's so we're Socratic. We're not. Uh, we're not utilitarian. <laughs> right. Right. And there's there's a whole bunch of different educational philosophies that they, we can talk about that lead into that. And I'm sure we will in, in future episodes. Um, but no. And so I think what what we're saying is that there is there is a calculus going on. There's a weighing of sorts um, in our decisions with the podcast. Um, but it probably doesn't fall under utilitarianism. Like you said, we, you know, even, even for this episode, we were talking about, we did our, we did the video last time. We are talking beforehand. Well, should we do the video this time or should we not do the video? Okay. Well, how much extra work is it? How much extra time does it take? How much is it this, you know? And so you're, you're making decisions, um, but based on different criteria. So what interactions does utilitarianism have with other systems? We've talked about Kantian, um, philosophy a little bit. Is there anything else that is either um, supportive or antithetical to utilitarianism or plays, has some sort of interaction with it? Well, yeah. Um, it's legion. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, what's, what's the one to, to, to talk about first? Well, we, we mentioned deontology. Uh, it really kind of, it doesn't clash with deontology, but but deontology is not doesn't have the primary uh, same motivation. Virtue, virtue ethics, which is uh, essentially the ethics of character, of uh, why you do what you do, and are you doing things that address uh, the best sense of of who you are, and putting that out into the world. Um, that's not strictly speaking utilitarian either. Um, uh, feminist care ethics, as it was originally called, and Carol Gilligan and, and um, Martha Nussbaum, um, uh, or just care ethics. Um, again, it's about helping the individual. It's often applied in nursing, uh, but not, not but not exclusively. But helping helping an individual because you have the set of characteristics that you want to help the in, an individual and. And, and many individuals, but you're not measuring it uh, against uh, how many overall to how few. 
um, and staying with that, the, the medical, think of the medical oath, uh, first do no harm. I, I told you once, I whispered that to myself in, in graduate school at, at the graduation ceremony. I just first do no harm because <laughs> teachers, that's what teachers should do. First, we should do no harm and then we can accomplish other things. Well, first doing no harm maybe sounds so skinch like utilitarianism, but but it's not first do no harm is not the same thing as how how many will benefit as opposed to uh, not benefit from a certain act. Yeah, it's almost a, a top up versus bottom down sort of yeah. philosophy. Like you said, one one is uh, a little bit utopianism or idealism centered. You know, what what is the greatest amount of thing? The other one is the opposite. Well, how can we avoid the the most amount of pain? Yeah, um, and I think there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between psychology or so, you know sociology sort of. Yes. Um, you know, you look at it and, and a lot of psychological theories. Um, they're completely okay with the fact that, all right, this is not an encompassing theory. We can't, we're not saying we can explain all of human behavior based in this theory, but we're saying if you look at humans making this set of decisions, this framework seems to best apply to what they're going to do. And this framework will apply in a different set of situations. And sociology, which is a completely different field, is going to you know, explain how groups of people make decisions as opposed to individuals and that sort of thing. And it feels like, you know, utilitarianism and, and deontology and a lot of these other philosophies are very similar where, um, you know, utilitarianism has its purposes um, when making decisions in certain instances. And it's, it's probably not so um, useful for other situations, but I feel like people have to be open to that, that possibility. If, if you're somebody who's willing to say, I'm a utilitarianist, um, then you, you, you're probably going to have some problems. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, you know. yeah, it, it, yeah, you, you will. And, and often the objections to utilitarianism have been, and, and that's why it's, it's, it has a, as a philosophical school, it's been very much on the decline since the, the late 20th century and, and into the 21st. It is not a, it is not a popular philosophy, uh, in the sense of, of grand application. Uh, now, it's not an ought kind of or should uh, kind of thing nearly as much as uh, perhaps in the 18th and 19th centuries when it was really being developed. Uh, uh, certainly, there are there are situations that I consider as in our own time uh, utilitarian based, but one of the big objections to it is that it doesn't address all ethical problems within. The scope of itself, and and really, I don't, I can't think of any system as a system that addresses all ethical problems. But nonetheless, there is lots of pointing out of problems that it doesn't touch or mm. doesn't adequately uh, respond to. So maybe we should give utilitarianism some love and actually come up with um, <laughs> situations where it is useful. So um, I mean, probably the more macro level you go, the more useful it is as opposed to looking at, all right, well, yeah, if we look at just Batman and the Joker, then it seems very obvious that, well, not, not even very obvious, but it becomes, okay, well, we can understand why Batman's making a decision not to kill the Joker. But if you're a public policy implementer, I feel like you, you are almost bound by utilitarianism. If you're not 
applying, you know, you're not abiding by the principles, then you're, you're almost not doing your job. You're tempting me, sir. (laughs) You are tempting me to go boldly where people want to go, but uh, yeah. All right. Public policy. So if, if, if a, if, a, if, a, if a leader uh, is is not considering what's best for the people represented uh, in large measure, but what is best for a small number of people to benefit from, or even more, a small number of companies to benefit from, uh, you know, but the Supreme Court just declared that, that a company has is essentially an individual uh, a number of years back so so we can go there uh, but we won't name names and we don't have to do that kind of thing but really uh, if your primary decision is is for a concept let's say the economy and not for the well-being of people and let's say you define well-being as uh, as health, then you've got uh, uh, ethical problems. Mm. So, yeah. So let's let's look at that situation then. Um, really, I think that the question you have to start asking yourself is, what is a human life worth? Mm. You know, yeah. um, and and that's where it comes in into question is you look at anybody who's reading the news knows the economic damage that's being done. Some people are talking about it on, um, great depression sort of levels, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's very feasible that that level of economic damage could result in the loss of human life as well. People who may starve or not be able to afford a place to live and they may die on the streets of homelessness or that sort of thing. Yes. So, there could be death um, in that direction, whereas um, lifting the quarantine will s- certainly result in death um, from if illness. If done, and, yeah. right, right. And so you have, if you have death one direction, you have death the other direction, and then you have this this sort of economic factor mixed in, trying to determine um, when when it makes sense to adjust policy becomes a very complex issue. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things, oh, so we're listening to, to medical professionals, all right? The, the, they're saying, okay, we shouldn't lift the quarantine till this time. And um, if we're defining well-being as, as health, yeah. that makes sense. But do the medical professionals have the economic knowledge to know what kind of death may occur from decreasing economic conditions? Can, or do you need to bring in a different type of expert to maybe a, um, a social services sort of perspective or who, I guess what, what I'm trying to get at in, in a, playing devil's advocate in a little way is who, what experts do we need to bring to the table in order to make a proper decision about when it's time to begin returning to normal? Should we just be listening to health professionals or does an economic professional have a seat at the table in this discussion? Well, an economic professional 
should. There should be a balanced set of seats, and that's what we do not see. Uh, in my singular, single opinion, as one person, we we have not. Uh, I hasten to say that because I'm not representing you at all, but we are talking about important things. And playing devil's advocate is also deeply important in philosophical thought, because if you can't understand the positions that other people are taking, even as difficult as it may be to try, then you're really not going to get... Uh, very far. So yes, you can't just have economists and pretend that you're listening to doctors until you don't want to. And and if all if all you are doing is listening to doctors and 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 not to economists, then you're also getting not the complete view. But the 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 idea of as you said, uh, equality at the table um, is something we haven't seen. Um, and and thus, and we have false, falsely dichotomous discussions. Well, you know, just using metaphors that that don't work in order to try to convince people of a kind of utilitarianism. See, this is what I where you've gotten me to the where I was hoping we might get, which is, I think there is false utilitarianism and true utilitarianism. And I think a false utilitarianism, as I would define it, uh, again, to, for myself, is, is one that gives lip service to what is best for the greatest number, when, in fact, there may be no underlying support for that thought or that, that, that intention. So, and, and that can quickly devolve in a population into discussions that should never, and I do say should intentionally, happen. So we hear people debating, well, uh, if I'm a certain age, then I should be willing to die for the economy. As if it's a martyr-like act. That's utter nonsense from, from my viewpoint. It's, you, you don't martyr yourself to an economy. That is not... Uh, that's, that's why this the militaristic uh, metaphor for this uh, whole pandemic does not serve a utilitarianist purpose. Uh, uh, do you, you see what I mean by that, Jack? So, yeah, no, no, it absolutely makes sense, especially when you're considering if somebody thinks they're going to be a martyr for the economy, that's looking at it in a far too limited scope because they're saying, oh, well, I should have the right to die to work. But really, what they're neglecting is the idea of, well, do you have the right to go out and choose whether or not other people die so that you can work? You yeah, don't see, have there that you decision. Are. There you go. There, and, and, and this is where it's so richly philosophically interesting. I mean, it, it, it's mind-bending, and it can be heart-bending, too. But it is fascinating if, if, if one looks at it. For instance, here, if you have... Let's say for utilitarian purposes, for the so-called greatest good, uh, well-being for the greatest number, uh, let's say the well-being of the economy, um, England is talking about this, Germany is talking about this, we're talking about this. So, let's, so if, you, if you have had COVID-19 and you can get, be given documentation that you have had it, then you can go back to work. Now, that sounds fine until you start thinking about, you mean I have to have papers? There have been regimes that required papers in order to, to do things. All right, so, so 
what does that drive people to do? Does that drive people to want to get COVID-19 so that they then can survive? And if they survive, then go back to work? That also requires a whole lot more testing than we've been able to do so far. Or maybe even forging papers and then going in and then actually getting the disease and then spreading it. Yes. And, and you know, it, it really shows a lack of medical knowledge on the part of um, normal individuals because, you know, lots of people talk about, they want to just talk about it in the absolutes of survivability rate. But what they don't understand is that you know, the immunity factor and the ability of the disease to mutate are large factors in why um, public policy institutions are being so careful about it. When it first started out, you could only catch it once. Now there's a sizable body of people who are becoming reinfected yes. uh, with it because the, it's starting to mutate in such a way that it can be re-caught again. And they're worried about it mutating in other ways to become more dangerous and have the mortality rate increase. And there's a whole host of issues that's, that's, that yeah. goes along with it. Exactly. And so it's, this is what I was talking about before, the muddiness of utilitarianism. If, if, well, well-being means being employed. Well, yeah, but well-being means healthy. So which, which things are you talking about and, and how do they collide and why are they colliding? And is there no other way to think about a system than see this is this is part of the larger issue. This is where I think Kant would take us uh, as one example. Perhaps you need to rethink your system. I'm gonna do Edvard Munch's Oh, oh no <laughs> scream. <laughs> we can go, we have to get back to exactly what we were doing. Yeah, and that was so good. Uh, That was, what was that? Let's look at the utilitarian factor of the planet itself. Let's look at the, um, let's look at just what we know now after what, a month? We've managed a month of, of, of doing this. We think incredible things a month. We're talking World War II metaphors. (laughs) A month. We can't, without, let's stop, let's stop. Uh, all right. What have we found out about the water? What have we found out about the water quality? We found out that things are cleaning up a little bit. We found out that the air quality is a whole lot better when you don't have a whole lot of jets flying. And so a true utilitarian in the sense of really getting down deep into it would would say ask things like well, then why is it necessary for us to go back to continue flying as we did? Why is it necessary to buoy up in an, in, in an industry which leads to that kind of wreckage when perhaps we could create another kind of industry which would take what we have learned from this awfulness and, and extend it into the well-being of the planet? I know I'm sounding all kumbaya, Joel, but do you see what I'm taking, getting at? Yeah, yeah, no, and this, now we're getting into the, the, the spot that I really like. Uh, you know, <laughs> policy decisions and, and individual sort of things is not, I like the, the grand uh, abstract things, which, uh, which we're getting into where it, now that prime motivation or the, the factor that you're identifying as the motivating issue for the utilitarianism becomes very important because like you were just saying, 
let's look at the utilitarian uh, the utilitarianism on a planetary level, right? So the greatest good for the greatest number of people, if we're talking about well-being for the human population, then yeah, what what coronavirus quarantine has shown us and what really green or renewable resources tell you is that it makes it makes sense to implement them because you know you, you were essentially destroying our own habitat with the way that we're acting yeah so that that's a i mean that's a very um explicit utilitarian um fact essentially there but if you look at it from a different way and this kind of comes back to the question I asked earlier, what is the value of a human life? Well, if we're thinking about utilitarianism or well-being as having as much, again, having as much happiness as you can have in life, well, then that can ask, you can ask a bunch of different questions. Like, okay, well, what's the, what's the value of a human life? Well, everybody's going to die at some point anyways, so we're not really saving anybody from anything by, you know keeping them at home everybody's gonna you know maybe some some people will lose some years but if we look at how many years they're gonna lose versus how much happiness we can gain by going back to doing things the way we were doing them (laughs) so it's a different type it all comes back to those really those core those core motivations those what is the initial mandate the, the the manifesto what is what is your actual those the seed thought behind it and that determines in a huge way which how that seed grows and how your utilitarianism um, is sort of viewed in the system. So that brings me to a speculative question is utilitarianism in, in AI, in artificial intelligence, right? How do, we, how do we determine that? How dangerous do you think that is? For instance, self-driving cars, right? Right. So, these self-driving cars have an AI. Now that system's going to learn when it gets into, for lack of a better term, like catch twenty-two situations. Right? You have bad road conditions, and the car has to decide: Oh, I'm either going to hit a pedestrian, or I'm going to crash the car in such a way that it might kill the driver. Yeah. What What do you see as the implications of AI and utilitarianism? Well, I can go a number of ways. I, I, I'm going to start with the, the the least palatable to uh, lots of people, but that's because I'm a science fiction kind of person. So, all right. there, how many how many different shows have we seen, movies and and books have we read that in which an artificial intelligence ends up uh, controlling and then eradicating humanity? Well, if you teach an artificial intelligence that uh, the 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 health of the world, and you use the word the world, uh, is primary, and by the world you might be meaning human industry, and by the world the, the AI understands oh the planet. Well, the health of the planet clearly would be much better if humans weren't here. <clears throat> and thus the storyline plays out. Uh, so language is important. We've talked about language before. Language is always, always important in any kind of intelligence. <laughs> and artificial intelligence is the notion that people might have that somehow it's going to be um, 
like us would then have to we would have to accept that it's therefore going to have uh, plentiful difficulties with interpretive language. Uh, so uh, this plays out in something I think I told, told you once uh, uh, a person who works uh, who's very close to me who works in industry and in writing code for artificial intelligence, so to speak, uh, for autonomous vehicles. And uh, the, the vehicle would unerringly, no matter what code they were writing, uh, would veer off the road to try to hit a cat. <laughs> now, now this was, you know, and, and, and so what do you do with that? I mean, it's what, what and people who don't like cats will say, okay, fine. Well, but, but, but from the viewpoint of interpretive importance, the world is not necessarily going to be utilitarian, uh, better in a utilitarian sense for the elimination of, of cats by autonomous vehicles. <laughs> now, I know that's microcosmic, but it's just that you're, so what you're, what you're really asking is, is artificial intelligence utilitarian in potential? Yeah, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, you know, going back to what I was talking about before that, that, that seed notion that we start with when we're developing a utilitarian system has huge consequences in how it develops. Yeah. So how do we, how do we ensure that the AI that we're developing that has this sort of power over human life to some extent, how do we know that we're doing it right? Oh heavens! I <laughs> I don't think we do, Joel. I, I think that it would it's an it would be an enormous uh, arrogance to to think that we can because in, indeed, how do we know that about our own selves as drivers? We we like to, how many times I've said it myself. I'm guilty. Of it. I don't know that I can let an autonomous vehicle drive me because I I trust my own judgment. Well, yeah, that's the same judgment that sees a person walking across the road when it's really two different mailboxes arranged just so up on a hill on the way to Batavia, and I see that in the winter time, and I know what it is, and it still fools me every time. Uh, that's the judgment that says, oh, oh, yellow light, I think I'm already partly through. I can get the rest of the way through. We have an enormously bad judgment. How many of us do actually drive the speed limit always where the speed limit is? Right. And 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 we will sanctimoniously or self righteously, or you know, to, to, with self justification is an amazing power that humans have. Well, I saw the conditions, and the conditions were fine. It's just the government telling me what the speed limit is. It's an arbitrary limit. I ought to be able to go faster or slower on my, big, but it's never slower. It's always faster, hmm. based on my own uh, choices. Well, yeah, and sometimes those lead to accidents. So if we're asking autonomous, see, I think a measure for, for me to be realistic and to be utilitarian would be, well, if autonomous vehicles, if the first goal is to make sure that they don't cause more accidents than human beings do, if there is any measurable fewer number of accidents, even by 10, 20, or 30, then arguably autonomous vehicles would be better. And and on we go, but that would that would make a lot of people upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's a that's a utilitarian argument, and uh, you know, really, the example that you just gave that really um, 
it, it, it dovetails very well with our, our pandemic argument earlier, um, which is that human judgment is uh, inherently flawed based upon, because we're acting on prior information, prior experiences that we have, but we haven't experienced all things prior. We don't have all of the answers. So we're trying to make the best judgments or what seem like the best judgments to us. But the problem is that our perspective is telling us that we're absolutely right when we don't have that kind of that kind of answer. So the anthropocentric response, well, we're humans, of course, we've lived it, we've thought about it, we'd be better at this than anybody else. <laughs> right. And so, you know, if somebody somebody can make a certain set of decisions driving, and if they make it there, then it was the right set. They can make the exact same set under very similar circumstances another time and, and have an accident, and it was it was the wrong set. Um, so it's I think the pandemic is a very similar sort of thing. Well, I've gone to work when people have been. I've gone to work during flu season when everybody's sick and I didn't die or nobody died or nothing happened. You know, and right. it's kind of a false set of assumptions. And I also think that you know the AI the development of AI and car systems and stuff kind of goes back to our, our public policy discussion when we're talking about having that balance of individuals. I'm not, a, I don't know the climate of AI development, but I think we need to have that kind of balance on those teams. Is it just coders that are making these decisions? Do they have philosophers? Do they have public Edu- you know, public policy officials who are also involved in the development of these systems. Exactly. You Should need they? a wide range. You need such a wide range. You need ethicists. You need coders. You, you, you need, pub- as you say, public policy people. You need the whole range. But you've got to be able to hear all of them and integrate that. Not, I'm going to gather these people to show people I can gather people, but I've already decided what I'm going to do anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's that false utilitarianism that that can creep in. Yeah, and it all it all really comes back to that that idea of the the that false sense of um, knowing what's right. I you know, well, this seems right to me. The intuition, you know, the intuition part of it. Well, it seems right to do this now. Well, it may seem right, but there's lots of things that seem right that aren't, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly so. Uh, All right. Well, this is, this has been great. And I think that we've done a, you know, a a pretty good job kind of opening up the conversation some, so. um, You enjoyed it. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll we'll get together next time. All right. Until next time, keep pondering.